0: We turn now to 1 Corinthians 11, in Texas, verses 1 through 16. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. <clears throat> now I commend you, brothers, that you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with His head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God judge for yourself, is it proper, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The Lord bless to us the reading of his holy word, and to his name be glory and praise. Amen. Amen. The way we dress, the way we adorn ourselves is always meant to project a message. Always. A king wears a robe and a crown. A police officer wears a badge. A referee wears a striped shirt. Sometimes our message is to project authority or honor. And sometimes the message is meant to draw attention. It's meant to provoke a response, immodesty, maybe, or irreverence, or to show, display an attitude of contempt and disrespect. Sometimes we dress to adorn ourselves, to slip into the background unnoticed, and other times we dress to pull attention towards ourselves. Either way, we always communicate something by the way we choose to carry ourselves and dress and present ourselves. Think of someone who goes to a funeral in a baseball cap and sweatpants. It's a bit awkward. Or a woman who comes to a wedding in a white ball gown as a a guest. It's a bit tacky. Or a pastor preaching in expensive sneakers and ripped jeans. Such a thing, especially if it happened intentionally and frequently, would need to be addressed. So that provocation would need to be addressed. And so in this text that lands on our ears very strange has a massive implications for our culture. For the Corinthians, this is kind of what was happening. Something similar was happening in the intentional and frequent dress to provoke. For them, life under grace had brought about all sorts of new freedoms. Much of what we've been talking about over the past few weeks is in line with Paul instructing them how they they navigate the the newfound freedoms that they have and to use those freedoms to glorify God. We've seen that. Um, If we don't remember that point and see this text as an extension of that same rationale, then this text will seem quite strange and a bit random in Paul's line of argumentation. The gospel has brought freedom in marriage and freedom in singleness. The gospel brought freedom in food and food laws. The gospel brought freedom in their association with unbelievers. And the gospel also brought a new view and dignity of women in the culture of the ancient world and within the church. Previously, women were barred from entering into certain of the temple courts, but now in the church, women were an integral part of the Christian congregation. In the Roman world, women were viewed as chattel and property, but women within the church were to be seen as valued as those who were made in the image of God. And as Paul mentions in this verse, this elevation of status and freedom and dignity included even, Paul mentions, praying and prophesying among the congregation. As a side note, I don't think this freedom meant leadership in particular in the preaching. I think that uh, Paul makes quite clear in his instructions in chapter 14, which we're going to get to shortly in 1 Timothy 2, that it is male requirements for that Leadership it's likely that this praying and prophesying was among other women, but nevertheless, there was a much richer harmony between male and female within the church right and i my my guess is because I live in this culture with you is that this is like a cat getting his fur rubbed the wrong way. it just feels against the grain right but God's word has such a rich and wonderful view of our value in his image and what he has in store for us as we demonstrate him within the church. That's what's in view here. This noble new position was given to women. They could pray and prophesy in the congregation, but they must still do so under authority, not adorning themselves in such a way as to project an attitude of rebellion, Paul says, you're not projecting an attitude of individualism. You're not projecting an attitude of pride. As we noted earlier, the way we adorn ourselves always says a lot about how we wish to be viewed and seen. How we project ourselves. So what exactly was the problem? The problem was dishonor and rebellion, immodesty, contentiousness. We see that in verse 16. They were contentious within the congregation, in the congregation of the Prince of Peace. And in this example specifically, this was primarily coming from the women in the congregation. And for that to be a problem doesn't really need much further explanation, like right? contentiousness, rebellion, individualism, and pride, that doesn't need much of an explanation. But here is how the text frames the situation. Why not you look with me? Verses 4 through 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, listen to the word, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. What do we have in view here? Honor and dishonor. That's what's at stake here. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, right there we have sort of a attitude of rebellion, they kick against the grain, against the goats, Then she should cut her hair short. The sentence is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head. Let her cover it. Look at verse 8 through 10. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. She ought to have a symbol of authority. What was happening in the congregation is that though she ought to have this she was not. And if anyone is inclined to be contentious, verse 16 says, we have no such practice and neither do the churches of God. So what put all those together, there, there is a dishonoring factor and there is a refusal to honor and then there is a contentious attitude in the mix. Kind of stir things up and stir the pot. From the time of Adam and Eve, go, go back through... A major arch, arc in scripture. From the time of Adam and Eve, there, there's been a wrestling between the sexes regarding authority. In Genesis 3, God said to Eve after the fall, one of the first things God said to her after the fall is that your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And here you get introduced just very quickly. You're going to be contentious and not want to follow him anymore. And his rule over you is going to be more of a, sort of like a dominion type of rule. You guys are going to be in a wrestling match. This means that one of the displays of the fall is disharmony between the sexes, and, and any marriage in this room can attest to that frequent tension of authority and submission and leadership, and what you might call harmony. It's what's going on inside the church? Adam was to protect and lead, but he failed. The new Adam protected, sacrificed himself for his bride, and he truly. Eve wrestled with Adam for independence and bucked against his authority. Just as the bride of Christ, the church, must repent from our desire to buck against Christ's authority. We be in submission as a church. We come and we confess our sins. We repent. We turn away from that attitude of rebellion. We don't want to dress ourselves in signs of dishonor and contention. We don't want to wrestle with God, yet we want to show visibly signs of his authority on me. Paul says, I'm a bondservant to Christ. See these shackles? "I'm, I'm Christ. See this baptism? I belong to Christ. You see this participation in his death? We want to show signs of honor. We want to show signs of his authority in our life. We often think of the church being a refuge for sinners who have turned away from obvious sins like hatred, murder, gossip, and lust, but because we have such a low view of authority, And such a high view of our own independence. And such a frustration at words like submission. We don't realize that it too is a great sin. And it was one of the first curses mentioned after the fall. As Adam and Eve was expelled from the garden. That was mentioned to them on their way out. So how are they displaying an attitude of rebellion? What what was the method that they were using to do that? Outwardly, some of the women in the congregation were refusing to cover their heads in worship. Now, what you're going to hear today is uh, sort of, you're going to hear a lot about their Corinthian culture, and we will answer, how do we apply that here? Now, let me go ahead and, I don't know that you're disillusioned, but let me go ahead and just say this. I, this is not a simplistic message about be good, be in line, be quiet. Wear long hair. It just isn't it. The Bible doesn't speak to us like that. This is, this is fundamental, the, the ground deep underneath your feet, where you stand and how you live and how we live before a holy God. But particularly in the congregation as a fashion statement, it was a sign <clears throat> of dishonor and competition that they would refuse to cover their head. And while I I certainly believe that actual cloth veils were and still common in the Eastern culture to display modesty or someone's marriage status, I think that seeing what is happening through Paul's comment about hair specifically brings clarity to some of the other statements as he defines the broader problem. So notice how he speaks about hair. Look at verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now the covering in view here is explicitly named as her hair and its length. And the disgrace here that comes to men or women is not a particular length of hair that's mentioned for either the man or the woman, right? Suddenly the man's hair just gets a little too long or suddenly the woman's hair, the barber got cut away, you know, carried away with himself, and they're full of disgrace. What was disgraceful was an intentional conflagration between the sexes, an intentional conflagration between men and women. Men who adopted feminine dress or women who adopted masculine appearance. And again, that desire to project themselves. And they had all these new freedoms, and they had gained all these new freedoms within the church, and that freedom had to come with it, just like the food laws and just like the marriage laws, it had to come with, look, you are free in Christ, like we learned last time, but not all things are helpful, and not all things are wise. Cutting your hair to conflate the sexes and sort of to, to, to elevate your role, yes, but but if a man tries to look like a woman, it's shameful. If a woman tries to look like a man, it's shameful. Look at verse six 4 through 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. It's a dishonoring thing. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors his head her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to to cut off her hair, she should shave her head. Uh, Let her cover her head. Some of the women, it seems, were cutting their hair short to look more masculine, blurring the lines between male and female, and it sent a signal saying something like this, I too can do what you can do. I don't need to submit to you. I am equal to you. So, what we get into this argumentation, he gets into this created order about Adam and Eve. And within the economic trinity, God and the Son, the Father and the Son, and the Spirit. He, he's, not, he's not saying you, you can flatten distinctions here. Instead, the Bible says something more about who you are. Yes, not flattened into what we might call equality or equity, but that in no means diminishes your value or standing. In fact, it, it does something quite terrible to mankind and in the church and to yourself if you do such a thing. If the covering is a sign of being under someone's authority, as it says in verse 10, then this uncovered attitude is rebellion against authority. Instead of scoffing at your authority. Paul says in verse 6, if you're going to cut your hair short, go ahead and shave Right, that's that's a it's an argument of reductio ad absurdum, you know. Hey, if you're look, you're gonna you're gonna kind of cut your hair short to sort of wear a more masculine haircut. Go ahead and shave it off. Like you're you're gonna come in into the church and kind of send that signal and buck our authority. Just just go ahead and just make your statement totally clear, right? That you're just gonna shave your head, which was a a, a shameful thing. More of a often the the image of of a prostitute, someone who's In high rebellion. So what was the solution? The Bible is not just preaching this kind of flat, simplistic message. Like we said, the women should merely adopt these specific methods and therefore they will be nice and polite and kind of out of view. What's What's the point he's getting at here? Why is this so serious? Why is this in line with all these other arguments? This is simply the type of lesson where the Bible pokes you in the eye. Bible pulls up your eyelid and touches you in the eye. (laughs) It just is. It's hard for us to see the point and the benefit of this instruction through the lens of this culture. But if you let the Bible speak, if you let it teach you, we'll always see wonders. We'll always see a light in the dark in our obscure path. So what's the solution? What's the way forward? What's the point? Well, obvious answer is that women should cover their heads. But Why? Paul starts with the argument for this whole section in verse 3 by saying this. Look at the text. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Within the way that God has ordered the world, there are glorious differences among roles. Glorious differences among roles. Those differences, however, do not belittle or denigrate us in any way. Notice that in that list of male submission to Christ, and female submission to a husband, you have Christ submitting to the Father. Certainly, Christ is not belittled because he submits to the Father. Certainly not. They would never say that. Why is that included? that's a lesson we have to learn in this dynamic. The problem was the desire to flatten the differences and wrestle for differing roles, right? We're going to see elsewhere, Paul makes a similar argument where an eye wants to be a hand, and a hand wants to be a foot, and a, and a head wants to be a toe. And it, what's the Stop. Be who you are and glorify God and see how God has done that. Glory is always greater when we embrace our role, not when we abdicate it or wrestle to have someone else's role. The peculiar glory that the Father has is seen in the fact that He is not the Son. Be careful when I'm talking about the Trinity, but this is a true statement and a wonderful one. The peculiar glory that the Father has is that He is not the Son. The peculiar glory that the Son has is that He is not the Father or the Spirit and yet they are equal. The peculiar glory that a man has is that he's not a woman. The peculiar glory that a woman has is that she's not a man. The peculiar glory that the moon has is that it's the moon and not the sun. And it's absurd to think that these differences diminish their value. It is in the presence of not anywhere else in creation that does this, but only in us who have the capacity for pride that makes difference into competition. You will see this competition nowhere else in the world. And I can see this ocean fighting to be the sky. But it is in the presence of man with the capacity of pride that you will see where difference breeds competition. Look at verse 7. This matters because of the image and glory of God. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Verse 7, For if a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Both male and female are under obligation to display the honor and glory of someone else. That is backwards from our cultural catechism, right? You exist for yourself, you display your own glory, yay you. And you, here's an Instagram channel and make your own publication and send it out to the world. Let me say that again. Male and female are both obligated to display the glory of another, of someone else. One does it in one way and one does it in a different way. Genesis 1.27 reminds us that both male and female are made in the image of God, but Paul alters the language slightly here. He says, but here we see male and female display glory uniquely. Man does this with an uncovered head displaying the image of God. Man's job is to display and glorify God. Woman does this with head-covered displaying and honoring and bringing glory to man. She is an adornment on man. If he's a king, she's a crown. She is his glory, particularly the language of wife here. And among the Corinthians, these crowns of glory, these women who apparently were frustrated about being crowns, wished and said to be the heads upon which those crowns adorned. But they not only can't be heads, they also ceased to adorn, they ceased to glorify, and in some ways, you cease to be a woman, just as if man is not God, and any man who wishes to be God and sets his life and thinking outside of the scope of submission to God, not only cannot be God, but become something less of a man. Does that make sense? So you actually double whammy, don't get what you want, and become something less than you're designed to be. And trying to steal glory or be discontent or project that uh, yelling attitude, you are yelling at the moon. God has made you to adorn and honor another. Does that diminish you? Well, no. Christ does the same thing. The Holy Spirit does the same thing. All things are from God. Look at how he he bandages this wound. In verses 8 through 12, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. But neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So we we do see he orders it and roots it in creation. and says, woman was made after man and made for the man. Her glory is in relation to him. Adam was made to tend the garden, and Eve was made to tend the gardener. Rubbing the cat the wrong way doesn't feel in our culture that you can say that. That is how God made the world. Verse 10 says that her symbol of authority is that she wears is because of the angels. And I, I take this as a reference to images such as in Isaiah 6-2, where the angels are before the throne of God, and what do they do with their wings? They, they cover themselves... In the presence of God, the covering does not diminish their status, but shows they are humbly under the submission of another. It's kind of what he's using by that status. In relation, as they stand next to, they project and display, like we we're saying, you adorn a position and an attitude that isn't in rebellion, but it is in humility. And it serves. And even though woman is made after man and for man, Paul says, but nevertheless, neither man nor woman are independent of each other. In the Lord, look at the text, woman was made from man, but now also each man is born of woman. And all things are from God. So now there's this sort of beautiful harmony between between we're not just generated by God like Adam was, we're born of woman. It's her glory. As she, as she bears forth fruit into the world. And then there's this dance, there's a bow and there's a curtsy, and all the notes on the keyboard are played not in some sort of dissonance, but they're played in an accord in a harmony, and they, they play and they reflect the glory of God. There's so much beauty in submission, we've turned that word into such a, a hideous hellscape of an assault of our pride. The world that God made serves all of us. Just as rain nourishes a field, and field nourishes a man, God makes each thing for its own purpose. Even among the Trinity, even among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they serve uniquely to glorify each other. And in like manner, male and female serve in harmony for God's glory and not for self-glory. I was thinking about this, and a a poem by G.K. Chesterton came to mind. It makes the point remarkably clear, and he made a, a sort of a satirical poem called Comparisons, and it says this, If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I were to set the flower beside the fruit, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set a man beside a woman, I suppose that some fool would talk about one of those things being better. Now, there are a couple of practical considerations here that I I want to address before we close. Are we still to wear head coverings today? I think that's a big one. Like other things in the Bible, there are timeless principles, and yet there are timely methods. We don't normally greet one another with a holy kiss, although we are told to do so five times in the New Testament. But we do take seriously the command to greet one another warmly, albeit culturally, differently. Okay, so there are some things like that where you're not saying, well, it doesn't apply today. We're not saying that so it absolutely applies today. How does that apply today? What does that look like? Paul also makes the connection in verse 16 that this particular practice of humility was a synatheia, which is a, the Greek word for custom. He's saying, look, this thing that we're doing, this practice, the way you're adorning yourself and coming in and saying, I don't care about your authority. We have a a custom of showing authority. And I think that's precisely a a wise thing for us to pay attention to that word because do we have customs that come in and we say, I don't care about being here, I don't care about your authority, and and I don't care what you say. I think we do have ways to project that. And I also think we have ways of projecting honor. We also know from texts we already uh, went through in 1 Corinthians that Paul encourage us, uh, encourages us to do contextual theology. In chapter 9, he says, To the Jew I became a Jew, to the, to the Gentile I became a Gentile. Look, I'll be all things to all people. But that is to say, contextually, I'm not going to go to the, the Jew's house and bring bacon-wrapped shrimp. <laughs> like, I'm going to show honor in a way that, that communicates honor. So how can we learn from this and do that? There are many people who choose to cover their heads with cloth in obedience to this text, and I think these are believers who are trying to send a clear statement of submission and in their efforts to honor Christ in that way, I I say amen. There are obviously situations in which someone loses their hair or a time and they they can't grow that, and again, this text is not about making the hair the rule um, or or. Or, or as a sign of being a legitimate Christian, right? You don't have to wear your hair a certain length or wear a certain dress or make sourdough starters in your basement or whatever. It doesn't make you a genuine Christian or homeschool, or any the other things? But we are to intentionally choose to display a distinction and a glory, projecting that we are bondservants to Christ and under his authority. Thing is, we all know that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what this text is. About. It's about displaying glory and honor. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus doesn't fall sin, uh, fall prey to sin and fall short of God's glory. And I bring this text up as an application a lot because I think it's so instructive for our redemption that In Philippians, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you hear all those language? Obedient, humbled himself, death, honor, service, washing feet, and yet he's equal to God. Man and woman our dignity our value our image bearing is is equal under the image of God and yet Christ in his example to us how we see the peculiar glory of our salvation is his obedience to the father and his willingness to serve and for the joy that was set before him enduring the cross it's how we see the image of the, the father's face joyfully expressed into the face of Jesus Christ and if we've seen him we've seen the father it's It's a way, it's a lens of seeing him. It's it's how we see up into him and how we show the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians 5, a marriage with its dance and its bowing and its curtsy and with submission and its self-sacrifice of a husband and with its honor and affection and submission from a wife, as opposed to its bucking and kicking and rebellion and tension and infighting and independence, displays the gospel. And in your home, It is on glorious display. And in the church, and in our church, as the culture around us gladly scoffs at a a talk like this. And they could throw a charge that you're just being totally simplistic and you got to do these little ritual rites in your religion. No, it's not. It is fundamental underneath us that the harmony that goes on within the church is that all things, even who we are as male or female, or even as a child gives honor to a parent, even as a man gives honor to Christ, and even as Christ gives honor to God, is a harmony that displays His glory, and not a disharmony that displays the self. And may we have that mind amongst us in Christ Jesus, as Philippians 2 calls us. We don't have the capacity to do this in our own strength. Because it's a curse that was given to Adam and Eve, it will be the feeling of your flesh every single day to be autonomous and to even project yourself in rebellion against God at times. So may it be in gesture and in language Amongst our congregation, in our marriages, between the sexes, between roles of servants within the church, and within our church, amongst our culture, let it be that the harmony and the chords that are played in clear note, not having a G wrestling to be an A and an A wrestling to be a B and being all dissonant and gross, let that clear chord ring out. Glory to God. Do you know where that's seen very palpably in our culture that doesn't like this type of thing? The Holy Spirit's power in submission, honor, humility, service, and in Christlikeness.